I was to ask you, what does a Wales rugby fan look like? How would you answer that? You might answer with some sort of description of the clothes that they wear. You know, on big international days, Cardiff, the Principality Stadium, they're filled with people who are proudly wearing that red jersey. Or women with big daffodil hats on, men with painted faces and pints in hand. You might have some sort of visual description of what a Wales rugby fan looks like. Or perhaps you describe them more in terms of their character, their nature, the sorts of things that they do and say. You might say that they have one eye in the middle of their head, that they can't say anything but Wales and their fortunes. If I was to describe a Wales rugby fan, I'd certainly say that they're experts in refereeing. Did you know that? A Wales rugby fan can, even without watching a game, tell you exactly why the referee was wrong, was biased and an absolute disgrace. And that's even when Wales have won the match. But what if I was to ask you the question, what does a Christian look like? I think actually that would be a harder question to answer off the bat like that. It certainly wouldn't have any sort of description of an appearance, the clothes, the dress, the externals of a person. It would definitely have more to do with that character, that nature, the way that they live and conduct themselves, wouldn't it? Well, this morning we're in Acts chapter 19, which on the surface feels a little bit like the clobbering together of random stories, things that happened geographically and chronologically near one another, and almost as if Luke, for the sake of it, for the sake of completeness, included them in his book of Acts. But actually, when we scratch a little bit deeper, we see that these are all stories which help us to see, help us to reveal and understand what a believer really looks like. Let me just summarise those stories for you. In the first couple of verses of chapter 19, we have this story of so-called disciples. Disciples who actually know nothing of Jesus, have no spirit at work in their lives, and end up needing to be re-baptised. The next story then is Paul carrying on um, his traditional uh, way of ministering in a new place, going to the synagogues, waiting there to be rejected and then carrying on with the Gentiles around. Then from verses 11 to 17, there's this really strange story of people being touched by clothes, by hankies, by aprons that Paul has worn, being healed, and others wanting to imitate that. Verses 18 down to 20, we have the story of believers getting together to burn scrolls and books which represent their old way of living. And then finally, the larger chunk of the chapter, verses 21 down to the end, is the story of a riot that swells up as people want to get rid of the Christians from Ephesus and how God intervenes and how God rescues in that situation. You might see that they feel like disjointed stories, but as we walk slowly through each one by one, I think we're going to see how these are stories that help us to understand what Christians look like. Well, what about the first story? 
chapter 19, verses 1 to 7. Apollos was in Corinth. Paul travelled through the interior regions and came to Ephesus. He found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? No, they told him. We haven't even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Well then, into what were you baptised? Paul asked them. Into John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, ah, well, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who would come after him, and that is Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. And Paul laid his hands on them, and they began to speak in other tongues and to prophesy, and there were about 12 men in all. Why would Paul even ask that question? Coming to Ephesus, meeting these people who proclaimed to be disciples, proclaimed to be followers of the way. Why do you think he asked them that question? Have you been baptised in the Holy Spirit? Lots of people would make out that this is one of the primary texts we can look at for a theology of two distinct experiences in the Christian life. That first we're to believe, we're to be baptised, and then at some later date we receive this special gift of the Holy Spirit, which everyone else can discern because we speak in tongues, and that is how it should be for every Christian. The only problem with that is that it doesn't really seem to fit even the rest of the book of Acts, how other people receive the Spirit, and it really doesn't get to the heart of what Paul is asking here. Earlier in uh, Acts chapter 18, there's a similar sort of scenario where someone named Apollos, a Jew, has come to faith in Jesus and is going round and is declaring Jesus and is uh, encouraging others to follow in this Christ the Messiah. But it seems that he wasn't quite certain of all the details, that he didn't have the full picture. Many of us, after decades of being followers of Jesus, would admit the same thing, that we don't know that there's still stuff for us to learn. Now, in that situation, Paul doesn't ask, well, have you received the Holy Spirit? No, he teaches Apollos. Priscilla and Aquila join in helping to disciple and build up this new believer. But here's something different happens. These people who are claiming to be disciples, it's almost as if from a distance, Paul can see that there is no difference in their lives. I think Paul discerned that the Spirit hadn't been given to these people because they hadn't believed in Jesus. That those who believe in Jesus receive the Spirit and the Spirit at work in our lives transforms us, changes us. Sometimes in miraculous ways, often in miraculous ways, but sometimes in more mundane ways. Think about how Paul wrote to the Galatian church in the midst of speaking about how different they should be. He said, put to death all of that old stuff and see the fruit of the Spirit born in your life. Love, joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and goodness, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Whether it is miraculous things like 
speaking in tongues, prophesying, declaring the praises and the wonders of God, or perhaps the more what we might call mundane things of, of how we act, our nature, our character. These are all evidence that the Spirit is at work in us. Think a little bit about how Jesus put it with his own disciples when he was encouraging them about life after he had died and risen again and ascended to heaven. He said this, didn't he? That everyone would know them by the love that they have for one another. Everyone would know that they were his followers by the love that they lived out. I think Paul arrived in Ephesus, stood amongst these people who called themselves disciples, and he could discern that that love of Christ was not in them, that the Spirit, which miraculously works in us these things, was not there present. Paul also wrote in 1 Corinthians 13, didn't he? We know this passage so well, that if love is present, well, what will that look like in our lives? Love will look like patience. Love will look like kindness. Love will look like humility. Love will look like sacrifice for others. Love will look like forgiving others. Not delighting in evil, but rejoicing when truth is encountered. Love will look like protecting, trusting, hoping, persevering. Sounds a lot like the fruit of the spirit that he wrote about to the Galatian church. It sounds a lot like something that would, would be visible in the lives of those who follow Jesus and trust in him. After all, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So if we were to look at this passage and to ask ourselves the question, well, what does a Christian look like? The first and foremost answer must be a Christian looks different. Because after Pentecost, after Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit to live in, to dwell amongst God's people, that power, that life, that change has to be evident in our lives. Paul doesn't preach to them this error that they've made about the Spirit. Paul preaches to them Jesus. It's Jesus that is missing. And when Jesus is supplied, they are filled with this life-transforming Spirit. For us today, we might ask the question, how different if we are believers are we really? Do we know God's power at work in us, through us, around us? Are our lives changed and transformed? Could somebody walk into our life, observe us for 15 minutes, an hour, a day, a week, and say, yes, these people are different? It's a hard question to ask because in so many ways, the answer would be no. For the most part, our hopes, our dreams, our fears, our expectations are just as in line with the world as our neighbours and our families and our colleagues who do not know Jesus and do not have the Spirit. But you know, I think this morning for us who are believers, who have received the Spirit, we might be able to say, yes, the Spirit is in me and he is at work producing obedience in my life. The Spirit is in me and he is at work subduing 
subduing sin and inclining my heart towards acts of love. Others might be able to say, yes, the Spirit is in me and he is welling up praises in my heart and my mouth that I worship Jesus, that I lift up the name of God the Father. Some of us will be able to say, yes, I know that the Spirit is in my life because there is courage being born, fear overcome. That The Spirit is the one who gives me the, the strength and the boldness to risk things for Jesus's sake. Some of us might say, yeah, do you know what? I know that the Spirit is there in my life because there are the gift of tongue, the gift of interpretation, the gift of prophecy. You know, they aren't certain and sure signs because they can be fake, but they are there for some people that God's grace by his Holy Spirit is at work changing us and transforming us. Brothers and sisters, the first thing that we see in these stories is that a Christian looks different in a tangible way. Not just in an intellectual way. Well, if you have believed, well, that means you must have the Holy Spirit, but in a tangible way. You know, we some of us who have been Christians for a long time can think back and remember how when we came to faith in Jesus, our hearts were warm to him. Our hopes were kindled. Our desire to love others, to love our neighbours as ourselves, was, was increased. If we aren't living differently, if we aren't different, then the question has to become, do we truly trust in Jesus? Have we received his Holy Spirit? That might be a scary question to ask in one sense, but in another sense, it is a totally freeing question to ask. Because if the answer is no, well then let me offer you this this morning. That you can put your hope, put your trust in Jesus. You can have your sins forgiven. You ha can be cleansed and washed, washed clean. You can have guilt removed. You can be brought from far off near to be sons and daughters of the Most High God. All of those things that we were looking at and celebrating in the run-up and around Easter, that can be yours. And let me tell you that when you trust in Jesus, he will come by his spirit to take up residence in your life and the transformation won't be complete. The transformation won't be uh, total. Those of us who have been following Jesus are still being conformed into his likeness, but the spirit will be there. And that power, that life that is in you now, God dwelling amongst you in the church will produce a discernible difference. The story carries on though. And we get another glimpse of what it is, of what a Christian looks like. Verse 8, Paul from that point having met these disciples, these believers in Ephesus and having shared Jesus and now having manifestly seen that the Spirit is there making a difference where Christ is believed upon, the Spirit works powerfully. He does what he always does. Verse 8, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly over a period of three months, arguing and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became hardened and would not believe, slandering the way in front of the crowd, he withdrew from them. 
taking the disciples and conducted discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. What are Christians like? I would say Christians are persistent. Christians are faithful. Christians are able to handle and deal with disappointments in one way or another and success elsewhere. See, Paul was a believer. Paul was a Christian. And you can, you can imagine just how much it would have wearied him, how much it would have weighed on him. The town after town, synagogue after synagogue, where the door was ajar, where the light was sort of beginning to glimmer and glimpse through, bam. Consistently, repeatedly, the door was closed in his face. Folks rejected him. They hardened their hearts. They rejected the message and the hope and the life that was being offered to them in Jesus. But Paul didn't give up. Paul has been on several missionary journeys already and he's out now conducting another one. Paul had been rejected from a couple of the towns before getting to Ephesus, but yet he still, he went to the synagogue and he offered hope. Paul now, after three months of being there and begging and persuading and exalting Jesus, lifting him up and finally finding this rejection which he couldn't cope with anymore, he doesn't leave the place entirely. He sets up camp next door in this lecture hall and for two more years proclaims the word of Jesus. It's different, isn't it? It's different. You can see the, the fruit of the Spirit in his life, his faithfulness to the call of God. God, why do I keep banging my head against this same brick wall? Because God has called him to it. Gentleness in his response, humility in his response, self-control in his response, peace, joy in the midst of it all. What does a Christian look like? Well, again, a Christian is someone who is different, someone who can persevere even when things aren't going their way. When a believer's life, spirit-filled life, faces frustrations and disappointments with others, even with ourselves, spirit-filled people, Jesus-believing people, Christians press on. Well, let us press on through the stories. What's there next? Slightly strange story, verse 11 onwards. See, God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands, so that even the face cloths or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick and the diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. It's very similar to what happened when Jesus was ministering. The woman touched the edge of his cloak or earlier in Acts with Peter, someone would just want to touch his cloak to be healed. Where we go now as Christ's representatives, where we go now with the Spirit of Christ in us, Christ is still at work. The power is not Paul. The power is Christ at work in Paul. Some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches, 
to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. The evil spirits answered them and it's comedic. I know Jesus. I know Paul. But who on earth are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them, prevailed against them so that they ran out of the house naked and wounded. And when this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. What do we learn about Christians and what Christians look like here? Well, I think this story shows us that Christians should in some way, their lives should, should look desirable to those on the outside looking in. It's a sad story because these people wanted the power, they wanted the glory, they wanted the razzle-dazzle, they wanted the results, and they wanted to do it without bowing the knee to Jesus. But you see how they looked at Paul. They looked at the other disciples. They looked and they saw the life that flowed from them in the name of Jesus, through the spirit of Jesus that was in them. And they wanted some of that. Brothers and sisters, as we assess our own lives this morning, if, as we ask whether we are really different in the way that the scriptures portray us being different, are we really living as if the Holy Spirit has taken up residency in our lives? We might well ask the question, do we live life in such a way that those, those even who do not believe in Jesus want to have what we have? I'm reminded of what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3. When he encourages, he prepares believers always to have an answer for the hope that they have. That folks would, would see, would spot something different in their lives and would say, how? How are you different? Not in a condemning, not in a judgmental way, but in an envious way almost. How is it that you can have that hope in this scenario, in this situation? How is it, Paul, that wherever you go, there is freedom, there is life, there is healing, there is wholeness? We want some of that, they say, but they don't want to bow the knee to Jesus. I wonder how many around us would say, do you know what, what you've got, how you live, the power of God in your life, we want it. Christians should look like those who others want to imitate, who others want to be like. And yet so often it's us that go around with our tail between our legs, with our ears down, with our heads down, wishing that we had the freedom to go off and live in whatever sort of way we see the world living. How upside down we have got it. Perhaps that is because we just do not know. We do not recognise, we do not enjoy, we do not pursue the power of God at work in our lives. Well, anyway, the spirits, they didn't recognise these people. They hadn't bowed the knee to Jesus, so the spirits weren't going to bow the knee to them. In fact, the spirits were going to give them a good kick in. But the story carries on. Verse 18. Many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, the things that they were into beforehand. 
while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. They actually calculated the value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. And in this way, the word of the Lord flourished and prevailed. What does a Christian looks like? A Christian looks like someone who is willing to pay the price. A Christian is, looks like someone who is willing to count the cost of following Jesus. Not to try and cash in or not to try and keep their old ways of life, but is willing to see them set in flames. To, to spend themselves and their possessions in order to follow Jesus. And I wonder again this morning how many of us are willing to sacrifice to be disciples. Jesus invited people in many ways. And one of the ways that we refer to often in church is in Matthew's gospel, when he invited people to come to him and find rest. Those who were heavy burdened, laden with so many things to come to him and find peace and rest. But Jesus didn't just put it in those terms, did he? Jesus also said that to follow him was to carry one's cross daily. To follow him was to deny oneself, to deny one's life in order to find life in him, was to be willing to have 50,000 silver coins worth of riches and valuable things associated with our old ways of life, associated with our idolatrous ways of seeking and finding life to go up in flames. Jesus said to follow him would be a costly thing because his way is a costly way, isn't it? Jesus didn't just come, set a table and say, who wants to eat? Jesus came to suffer, to be tempted, to be convicted, to die in our place, to grapple with death, even to the point of dying himself and yet defeating that death in our place. See, the way of following Jesus, what Christians should look like is people who are willing to pay the price. It is, grace is free. The offer of the gospel is free, but the way is not cheap. The way is not easy. John suggested last week, didn't he, that actually some of us might want to think about how we reorder our lives, to reorder our time, to reorder our finances, to reorder our expectations so that we might follow Christ, so that we might present Christ, that we might offer Jesus and the hope that there is in him to others. We don't speak about money very often in our church. It's often quite difficult for me or John to bring it up because we are beneficiaries of, we are recipients of, followers of Jesus giving a portion of their wealth to the church so that we can minister in the ways that we do. And the truth, the reality is that our church exists only because of the tithes, because of the offerings of its people. And for the last couple of years, even though our numbers have grown, our giving, our income hasn't. So I wonder in that specific way, are there members of our church, parts of our church family who are not counting the cost? 
It's not just though in finances, it's, it's in time. Each and every week I am being contacted by people who lead various ministries in our church. Youth work, renew, Sunday school, various rotors, always asking, Sam, can you ask for help? Can you ask for volunteers? Because so very many of us have organised and arranged our time so that we're not sacrificing, that we're not spending in order that Christ be known. We should ask ourselves, assess ourselves, what does a Christian look like? A Christian is someone who is willing to pay a great significant cost. In what ways does it cost us to follow Jesus? Are we paying the cost? Christ has paid the price for us to know life, life abundant, life eternal. Are we willing to let go of those things which would drag us down, drag us away? In Hebrews, we're studying as rooted groups at the moment. The author encourages believers to throw off everything, sin, some things not sinful, that entangle, that ensnare, that prevent us from running the race, straining towards the prize, which is Jesus. Is there something that you're holding on to that you just need to let go? A relationship? hobby, an experience, an old way of life, some portion of your time, some portion of your finances. Christian looks like someone who is willing to count the cost. The last section, and I won't read it all, is the report of a riot that erupts that those people who are there in Ephesus, who otherwise would have benefited so much out of the idolatry that was rife there, they say, we've got to get these Christians out. We've got to get rid of them because it's affecting our livelihood. And this situation arises where a huge crowd comes together and they're all screaming together about how great Artemis of Ephesians is, this God that looks down over the whole city. They don't really know why they're chanting. They don't really know what all the kerfuffle is about. But let me tell you, in the midst of that, Paul is ready to speak. Paul is keen to give a defense for why Jesus is better than the riches, why Jesus is better than the wealth, why Jesus is better than the high esteem the city has because of its temple and because of the because of the worship that goes on there christian is someone who is willing to speak up for jesus but in this story it's not paul who speaks up god provides someone else god provides this city clerk who calms down the crowd people of ephesus verse 35 what person is there who doesn't know that the city of ephesus is the temple and that in the city of Ephesus is the temple guardian of the great Armatus, the image that fell from heaven. You have brought these men here who are not temple robbers or blasphemers of our goddess. If you seek anything further, it has to be done legally. And he disperses the crowd. He disperses the rabble. A Christian looks like someone who is willing to speak up. But a Christian is also someone who... More often than not, the Lord provides for. 
the Lord provides for, as we've seen in the life of Paul and his um, accomplices on his various missionary journeys up until now, interceding to keep them safe. So I wonder then, it's not a comprehensive list by any means, but we do get this glimpse into the picture of what a Christian looks like. Wales fan, red jersey, daffodil on their head, pint in their hand, complaining about the referee, but a Christian, someone who has the spirit of Christ living in them, working through them, preparing the soil and the ground around them. They look different. They look different because in miraculous ways, and let's not think that when love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and self-control, when they well up in us, that that is not miraculous too. Because in miraculous ways, Christ is at work in us. That we are a perseverant bunch. That we are faithful to the mission that Jesus has given us. When the Spirit comes, he said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. That we are faithful, persistent, gentle in that. That our lives, because of the hope that we have, are desirable to those around us. Even if that means that we're spending ourselves, we're counting the cost of following Jesus. And in it all, we're always willing to speak up but expecting that God will be able to speak up for and to defend himself. That's what a Christian is like. It's not a conclusive list. It's not a comprehensive list by any means, but it's a glimpse. And it gives us pause for thought this morning. Are we living for Christ as we ought? As, are we living for Christ as we can? Brothers and sisters, I pray that as more and more of us determine to listen to to respond to to invite and encourage and implore the spirit to be at work at us to be more like christ in our lives to offer jesus to more around us that god's name will be glorified his kingdom will come his will will be being done on earth as it is in heaven let's join together in pursuing that reality in jesus name Amen.